all, welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel, and today we're going to be talking neighborhood councils with the president of the Los Feliz Neighborhood Council Board, John Deutsch. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So I want to start off uh, by saying thank you for a couple of things that you all have been pushing in LFNC, uh, not just the CIS that you put in on the Green New Deal here in LA, but also the fight you've been doing with the uh, bridge housing. So thank you very much for that. Uh, I wanted to use that to enter into why you see neighborhood councils as having power in the city, because they get kind of a bad rap, but you seem to be trying to sort of rescue them and give them a little bit more power. Neighborhood councils are empowered by the city charter to advise the city government and to monitor the delivery of city services. And whereas a lot of people see that as a liability, I actually think it's a great strength because we have a mandate essentially to organize. And that's what we can do better, I think, than most other councils through meetings, one-on-one meetings, social media, and it turns out the more you get around and the more people you organize, the more City Hall tends to listen to you. Uh, we have a very robust social media presence, and we, our council members know that we can put up an Instagram post and get 100 people to show up for a meeting. Uh, we also don't really like to follow the, the tenor of other neighborhood councils where it's sort of pitchforks and torches. We, we don't think we're entitled to anything. We're willing to work with anybody. Uh, we're even fine hearing no, but we want an explanation behind the no. So I think we really are just grassroots community organizers who have uh, the ability, because we're open to everybody and because we're elected from the people, to talk to all people. And if you have the patience and the collegiality, you can get a lot done. Now, there's about 99 neighborhood councils. There was almost 100 with the little Bangladesh one. Um, But uh, I wanted to ask, what's it like working with other neighborhood councils? Do you see this as something across the city where they're all equally engaged, or are there some parts of the city that are stronger and and weaker? Unfortunately, they're not. And you can see the disparity uh, even here on the east side of town. Uh, Los Feliz has 19 elected members who meet regularly, and we have something around 30 to 40 committee members. Actually, tomorrow, we're going to get them all together for the first time and see just how big this organization is. Um, But the council immediately to our south... uh, regularly cancels their meetings because they can't get quorum. Uh, We have 42 people running for 10 seats in two weeks. They have trouble recruiting candidates. So it it really is a case-by-case basis. Part of the problem is that we're all volunteers. There's not a lot of city staff. And all it takes is a few people getting new jobs or or stepping aside an election for an organization to start over from scratch. Uh, But we have some folks in the last few years who have laid a really good foundation. And in the last year or two, we've really been focused on institutional change, cultural change, um, so that even if if something happens, if I lose in two weeks, they're going to be okay. And I'm, I'm happy you brought up the board elections, because this is something that we don't get a lot of turnout in this city, unfortunately, and it's one of our most direct entrances into democracy. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the size of your constituency, and then what voter turnout's going to look like, and then hopefully what y'all are doing to try and increase voter turnout. Sure. Um, the neighborhood councils do vary widely in the amount of people they represent. And unlike pretty much every other form of government, uh, the stakeholdership is extended beyond just residents. Uh, Every neighborhood's different, but generally speaking, anybody who lives, owns property, works, or has some sort of significant connection to the neighborhood is entitled to vote and participate. Now, this can mean anything from being a member of a church to a school, 
or under the current definition of the law, it could mean coming in and saying that you frequent a business, the so-called stakeholder, a Starbucks stakeholder uh, issue. Uh, but we find that, you know, like most things, it tends to be residents, but it's really something that's wonderful because you can be uh, as young as 13 and vote. We have had folks who have lived in this country for years but aren't citizens be able to come in and have their voices heard. So it's a really large franchise. Uh, the problem is that neighborhood council elections, while they are run by the city clerk, are run on odd days at odd times of the year. Um, because the we've been told that because the neighborhood council boundaries don't line up neatly with city council boundaries or, or assembly boundaries, that we can't be voting for neighborhood council menu, members at the same time we go in to vote for our congressman, per se. So we have these, these odd days, and there's a very limited budget in which to um, affect any sort of outreach. So a lot of it is kind of on each individual neighborhood council. Some uh, will do, we've done, for example, uh, bus bench ads. We do a lot of social media ads, ads in the local paper. Anytime you have a controversial issue, you'll have a lot of turnout. Uh, we had, in when I was elected in 2016, I was elected first of eight with a whopping 56 votes. Uh, but the next person had 27. So, you know, these are people who actually get up on an odd Saturday and go to some place that they've never voted at before and bothered to do it. Last year, uh, side plug, when I was in charge of the election, we increased turnout 56% by having extended hours and an additional day of voting. But I think also more people knew what was happening and what was going on. If you look this year where we have a record number of declared candidates, I would expect those numbers to, to, to hopefully creep up. We'd love to get 1,000. And I know that sounds like a very small amount, but that would be tremendous. And Los Feliz, just to give you some context, has about 33,000 residents, but about 45,000 stakeholders. So if you include all those other people in there, uh, and we have five geographic districts, mine, which we're in right now, District B, uh, we're right near Little Armenia and Town, has 11,000 residents. Yeah. So that's a, it's, a, it's a pretty big neighborhood. And, and if you look out the window here, up the block is Angelina Jolie, and there's a halfway house across the street. And that's one district. So they can be very, very big and very diverse. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I didn't realize you were so close to the ground game office because we're down at the downtowner, basically, that the office building attached to it. So we've also got people who are in East Hollywood, Hollywood Studio District, uh, my favorite hunk, which is the Hollywood United, and just sounds like the sexiest neighborhood And their, their website, I believe, is myhunk.com. All their email address, you know, it's Joe Schmo at myhunk. But the, especially around here, we have very active neighborhood councils. Uh, and this even goes down to like Koreatown, where we had finally a resolution for the bridge shelter or the, the bridge housing that went through. But you've been working on a bridge housing facility in Los Feliz. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how that's activated the neighborhood and what that process has looked like. And if you learned anything from that Koreatown fight, because that was brutal. It, it really was. I was actually down there. We, uh, doing some business for our election last year when we had some of the, the street protests, which were um, really incredible and, and personally kind of depressing when you saw uh, just the massive turnout for, for what I think is a very good initiative and a good project. Um, what we've done here is a little bit different. Uh, and this started, this is part of the Mayor's A Bridge Home uh, program, which is the goal is to put temporary bridge housing, and, and bridge housing is meant to get a roof over our homeless neighbor's head so that they can begin the process of getting a permanent home, uh, to put 15 of these, one each in every council district. And some have had some success, but most have faced a, a lot of opposition. Our council member, David Rue, who represents most of Los Feliz, tried to do one last year in Sherman Oaks. And they had a big public meeting, and it was a blank show. People came out, they were angry, uh, yelling. It, it was, you know, the worst sort of town hall meeting you could imagine. 
And a few months ago, I sat down with uh, David's chief of staff. I'm not going to claim all the credit for this because I think a lot of people realize this. And he said, well, what do you think about bridge housing in Los Feliz? I said, I love it, but you've got to do something different. You don't just call a big meeting and try to pitch it to people. You go, you have one-on-one meetings with community leaders, with the homeless advocates. You have one-on-ones with the folks you think are the most likely to oppose the project and explain it to them. Explain to them that bridge housing is not a shelter. Explain to them that it's not a place where some people come in at night and they're kicked out in the morning. Explain to them how it works in this continuum of care and how this really is the most effective way to get people off the street. And they did. And they recruited us as the neighborhood council to go out and have similar discussions. So before we ever got an official council motion, Uh, There were a lot of coffees, there were a lot of drinks, there were a lot of one-on-ones, and it paid off. We actually asked them to make the neighborhood council because we're a public body where everybody can come and speak the last to weigh in on it. And as a result, the Los Feliz Improvement Association, which has traditionally been dominated by homeowners and has taken a dim view of development, endorsed the project. The Friends of Griffith Park, uh, who usually look askew at anything, any changes to the park, and this is Reckon Park's property, endorsed it. The uh, Griffith Park Adult Community Center, our senior club, endorsed it. And by the time it got to us, uh, there had been such a, a, a grassroots groundswell of support and understanding that when it came time to vote, we, we not only voted unanimously uh, to endorse the project, but there wasn't even a single public comment in opposition to it. Could you fill us in on some of the details as far as like placement and stuff? Because it sounds like you, you already have an idea behind it. It's not the same as like even the Hollywood one that's down um, sort of by Vine uh, across from the, the LGBTQ center, uh, which like when they're putting up plans, it was still like, well, it's going to be- The Schrader project? Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. Schrader project, but it's still going to be like, it's going to be one of these plans. We hadn't dialed it in. It was it was a very messy discussion, but it seems like you have a much more firm plan about what will be going in, how many people it will serve. Well, this is where I have to I have to give credit to David Rue and his office because I think they, they had a masterstroke here. We're looking at a property that's down by the LA River that's already owned by the Department of Recreation and Parks, so there's no purchasing required. Um, it is happens to conveniently be both away from most of our apartments and homes and right across the street from the LA River, which is where we already have a great deal of our neighbors experiencing homelessness living. And the real genius here, I think, is that the site currently is an old city building and a large parking lot. And what uh, Council Member Rue proposed was that we use that parking lot for the installation of bridge housing, which are often pre-constructed buildings or, or sturdy tents, while examining the feasibility Uh, of turning the existing building, tearing it down and building a new, larger senior center. So the seniors are on board with this project because these are moving forward in tandem and they're going to get something out of it too. And quite honestly, they're even somewhat excited about the idea of counter-programming, of having some of our more experienced and respected neighbors being able to offer services, wisdom, uh, compassion, to some of our most uh, needy neighbors. So that, that I think, was really, really smart. It's a, it's a good use of space that we already have. It's in a good location. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I don't want these people living near my house. And we can say, well, they're living right near, they're across the street. We're just going to yeah. get them into, you know. They're home. already your neighbors. Ex- they, they are. They are. Yeah. And, you know, they are our stakeholders. We represent them. They can vote. They do vote in our elections. Uh, we do try to get them to come to meetings, and they're every bit as important as somebody who lives in Laughlin Park. Now, have you all been involved uh, at all um, with the uh, permanent supportive housing push that's been going on? Because uh, Mitch O'Farrell, to his credit, uh, though I am loath to give it sometimes, has built more units than he has to. Uh, David Ryu, I believe, is is still a little bit lagging on the 222 number, but we're seeing progress there. It's, it's yes, I, I think that there is support for permanent supportive housing in Los Feliz. We have... 
the un, well, unenviable problem of, of not having a lot of vacant land right now, and our land is very expensive. When I first moved here, like so many other parts of LA, you could get a decent one-room apartment, and now you, you just can't. And anytime any property becomes vacant, uh, especially because of things like SNAP, the uh, station neighborhood area plan or specific neighborhood area plan uh, and the transit-oriented communities, a lot of developers are seeing uh, very large margins in in what they can and can't do. And there are some occasional projects with density bonuses, um, but the real problem, I think, for permanent supportive housing in those fields would be finding a site. And what we really need for that is uh, either somebody who currently has a property who's willing to donate it uh, or somebody with deep pockets. Um, I know LA Family Housing, where I just started working, has a project coming up called The Angel uh, because some guy owned this Angel hardware store. And when he retired, he said, you know what? I'm just going to give you the property, do something good with it. So that, that's, that's really what we need around here because we don't have a lot of opportunities for infill. So if we can do that, I think this neighborhood you know, would support it with, with the same sort of calm conversations and compassion that they've shown thus far. Yeah. And there's already a lot of services that are, are delivered here through the Unitarian church, um, through the, uh, the Salvation Army. Uh, she does runs a, a biweekly shower here. So there's a lot going on in that area already. And I just want to give like- a, a shout out to Sila. Oh, if you yeah. know Sila, the uh, Silver Lake Echo Park Los Feliz Homeless Association, which was founded by two of our board members, uh, Kat and Janet Kim, who do yep. tremendous work. Yeah, no, they're both uh, amazing. Kat is, is fantastic. I did want to shift a little bit. Uh, the, the Green New Deal uh, CIS that, that we talked about at the front, I should stop using so many acronyms, but the, <laughs> the Green New Deal Community Impact Statement. I wanted to talk a little bit about what community impact statements are, um, how they're used to, to uh, engage with city council, and if you find them to be effective, or if you find them to be something that city council kind of like, oh, well, thank you for your input, but we're going to ignore it because you don't have legislative authority. So community impact statements are one of the things that are provided for in the city charter and city code, and they're, they're the closest thing to quote-unquote legislation that a neighborhood council can can effect. It's essentially our official position on something the city council is considering. So whenever any council member brings a motion or considers any sort of law, there's a council file that is created. And if a neighborhood council passes a community impact statement, it is permanently attached to that council file. So you can't pull up the law without saying, hey, look, the Los Feliz Neighborhood Council said this, the Silver Lake Council said this. When those things are passed and they have to go through public hearings and and a formal vote process, it also enables... uh, the president or members of neighborhood councils to go down and speak longer than you would normally be allowed to under public comment. Yeah, you get a whopping five minutes. You get five minutes instead of two minutes. Um, And Los Feliz has really tried to take uh, advantage of this. We just did the math for the last fiscal year, and even though we're one of 99 neighborhood councils, we're responsible for over 12% of all CISs. Wow. And we know that they do have some impact. We, we, I, I couldn't show you the email that proves it, but I know that during the Airbnb debate, Uh, Several of our members attended, and we had several hearings on it, and we were very concerned that the blanket prohibition would be unfair to individuals who own their own homes, who are living in their own homes, who simply want to rent out a room. A lot of these are single parents who who need the additional income. And so we crafted a CIS that said that that exemption, there there should be an exemption for that. And lo and behold, there was. Mm -hmm. And And uh, this would get around the 180-day cap. Exactly, exactly. There's a 180-day cap, which I think we believe is appropriate in most instances. But if you're living in your home, and your kids have moved out or you're divorced or you've lost a parent and you have an extra room, that, we thought that, that you should be able to use a uh, 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 sharing service to, to gain that extra income. Mm-hmm. And that was as a result of our community engagement. And we do believe that our CIS really helped push that change over the hill. 
And moving forward, what are the things that you are looking at um, as far as what Los Feliz Neighborhood Council wants to do kind of under your stewardship, assuming that you survive the next two weeks? <laughs> we'll see. Uh, there's, yeah. there's still a lot of people to bribe. Um, but uh, the, we, have, we, have a, we have a lot of things we want to do. One of our biggest concerns is uh, transportation safety, uh, pedestrian safety and road safety. We, we've done a, a tremendous job in the last two or three years of redesigning intersections, getting new crosswalks, uh, leading pedestrian intervals, especially near our schools. Um, but as you may be aware, recently we had a, a fatality on Hyperion Boulevard. A, a grandmother was struck and killed uh, while she was collecting cans, I believe, to help her granddaughter go to college. This now, is, it was it was raining very heavily, and the driver was not yes. found to have been at fault criminally, right. but it was it was a bad situation on a very poorly designed road. Yes, and that's the thing. We raised concerns about this exact stretch of road two years ago in a formal letter to the Department of Transportation, and we never heard back. Uh, Danny Cohen, who's the co-chair of our transportation committee, was just quoted the other day in Curbed, uh, saying... You know, we we want a response. We, we we get a letter back, and the the DOT spokesman said, "Well, it's not our policy to issue formal responses." And again, we're we're not looking right now for for a road diet. We're not looking for closures. We just want answers. We want communication. The city charter says that that the city departments have to talk to us. So we we we've had a lot of success in that area. We want to keep pushing forward. Los Feliz, even though we're near Griffith Park, is somewhat park poor. We don't have a lot of public spaces. We have a lot of young families, and they don't really have anywhere to go. And because we're so close to the park, all of the funding metrics for park funds say, oh, you're fine. Los Feliz is fine. But, you know, you can't push a stroller a mile up a hill just to get to the closest playground. So we're investigating uh, parklets, mini parks, things like that, and we've had a lot of success. We really would like to get some traction on tenants' rights and renters' rights. We have a lot of RSO properties here. And I think one thing that most people that you would call Yimby or Nibby can agree on is we need to protect those units and we need to make sure that the people who live in those units understand their rights under the law. So one of the things we're looking forward to doing in the next few months is creating a tenant's advocate position. We have a lot of folks in the neighborhood who have approached us who have experience in uh, uh, tenant law, uh, some are lawyers, and we think we could put together a really great resource for them. And uh, there are a million other uh, wonderful ideas. We have uh, cultural ideas. We'd like to bring back some sort of street fair in Los Feliz. We're really getting active and engaged in Marshall High School, uh, which is our local school. Um, and th so there, there are a lot of things coming up. And there's some, there's some bigger, wonderful, ambitious projects that I'd love to see us continue, such as opening up the Rowena Reservoir uh, in some form to take this beautiful public space that's currently behind a wrought iron fence and see if we can't activate it and make it more neighborhood friendly. So there's a, there's a lot of different ideas out there. And I, I think... I, I think they're all achievable. I, I did want to talk uh, because you had uh, sort of a, a funny photo with uh, Ryu and Afaro, uh crossing a brand new pedestrian yes. crosswalk, which is great. Uh, but it took two years to happen. So I wanted to, to discuss a little bit about with you, with you the frustrations and also the timeline that LA City moves on is almost designed to short circuit a neighborhood council because the elections are happening every two years. But often these processes are three, four, six years to get through council and get approved by DOT and all yes. that stuff. Well, that's why I, uh, our council has four-year terms. They're currently, some of them are three-year to, to realign the elections as the city realigned the elections, but it helps to have that institutional memory and not switch over all the time. But this particular project was a great challenge. We originally applied for a crosswalk here in the context of a Great Streets grant, the mayor's Great Streets program, uh, which I remember pitching to our local bid the day after the 2016 presidential election. They weren't exactly uh, all ears at that point. Uh, which bid? 
Uh, this was the Los Feliz Village Business Improvement District. And uh, we didn't get chosen, and so we decided to start agitating for it on our own. And we went through our process, which is committee hearings, letter writing, and then once it's the official position of the board, we're free to bother people as much as we want and poke them. And this was something that uh, George Hacopians, who is uh, Mitchell Farrell's deputy over here, thought was a good idea. It had a lot of support from the businesses over there, home state, Cavell, and Go Get em Tiger. And so we began looking into the process. Now, this is a very large stretch of road. It's a 70 feet across. Uh, it clearly would require infrastructure beyond just paint on the curb. And so there were a lot of questions about money and design. Uh, things like these can cost a hundred to $200,000 to install. And that money's got to come from somewhere. And the city doesn't just have one big pot of money. It has a lot of little pots of money. So investigating it, uh, we discovered that if it was on one side of the street, it would be 90% funded by Vision Zero funds. If it was on the other side of the street, it gets nothing. And the reason it gets Vision Zero funds is because it's so large, you have to put in things like a, a, a concrete island. You have to put in new lights. And, and it, it, was an, it was an opportunity to try some new design standards. But then we ran into another problem, which is that the southern terminus of the crosswalk, right in front of home state, would require an ADA-compliant curb cut, which would remove their shade trees and remove their... Uh, street seating. In addition, you need 200 feet of red curb in front of a crosswalk, and that would eliminate their loading zone. So it took a lot of back and forth with the businesses who obviously wanted this crosswalk, but didn't want to destroy their business in the process of doing it. And if you actually go there now, you will see a custom ADA cutout with a, with a hard side on one that maintained that tree and that street seating. But it took a lot of conversations with both uh, DOT, Bureau of Street Services, and the Department and the Bureau of Engineering. It also seems like it, take, it takes a lot of institutional and technical knowledge of how city, city budgeting processes and stuff work. Um, were you doing that on your own? Did you have support from either council or your own uh, neighborhood we council? We were very, very lucky to have tremendous support from both uh, Mitchell Farrell's office and David Rue's office. The, the Hollywood not only splits the two council districts, it splits neighborhood council districts, it splits two business improvement districts, it splits two police divisions. So it's twice as much communication. There's twice as many opportunities for people to say, oh, that's not my, my problem, talk to so-and-so, talk to so-and-so. Um, but both council offices were great. They each put up the rest of the money out of their discretionary funds. And uh, as a result, we, we got it built. And it's good, too, because you know, there's a lot of development happening in that area. There, we're, City Lights, which is a large development on the corner of um, Hillhurst and Hollywood, is still slated to, to be built. And that's going to be so many more people walking down the street, walking to the metro. There are new businesses opening up on the north side of Hollywood. Um, but, you know, for folks who wonder why this takes so long, there literally are four or five different government agencies pulling money from different sources, from different council districts. And, and sometimes all you really need to do is just pick up the phone every now and then and say, how's it going? Have you talked to this guy? Have you, have you spoken to this guy? Neighborhood councils can really serve as facilitators of conversations and even sometimes as project managers because they can tie everybody together. But again, only if you're if you're willing to put in the work and you're willing to be patient. And, and also one where, you know, a major criticism of neighborhood councils is since it's unpaid and there is a lot of work and a lot of knowledge that you need to understand how to run meetings, how to form committees, like all of the, the stuff you need to be able to, to do to get up to speed just to participate in that process. If you were uh, 
emperor for a day of Los Angeles. What what would you like to see changed about neighborhood councils? What do you think could be made more effective about them, like within reason? You know, we don't want little fiefdoms popping up all sure, over LA. Sure, Well, I, I think there's some very simple fixes, uh, and I'll give you one. Um, currently, every neighborhood council is expected to set up and maintain its own website and email account. And for some, like ours, where we have some people with technical knowledge, that's fantastic. But that's a really tall order to ask a group that doesn't know how to do it. It's totally within the cities. And, and by the way, we pay for it out of our budget, which is tax oh, dollars. okay. And that's out of the 40000 you're given every We're year? We're given about 40000 within plus, you know, plus or minus five. We're now going to be able to roll over 10000 year to year, which is... Because which is yeah, everyone used to be leaving a lot of money on the table. Yes. And that was a problem for yes. a lot of neighborhood councils. There's a lot that, of buying of hats and frisbees and uh, and tote bags at the end of the year. Though, though I will say, the way we were able to bring uh, Shower of Hope out here to Hollywood is we realized that Hollywood Studio District had uh, about $15,000 yes. they are going to leave on the table. And so Rich King went and really whipped the committees in about two weeks. It was like, we have to give this money up in three weeks. In two weeks, we can get this passed and get showers out here. I, I just came back from a meeting at the Greek Theater where Marshall High School holds uh, an annual conference concert every year and they were having trouble coming up with some of the money and I said well you've got to pick up the phone and call our recreation and education committees because we've got $10,000 we've got to spend in the next two months and maybe this is what we want to do so just something like even you know something like that with a standard website or email address for the neighborhood councils one thing we'd also really like to see which we've proposed is some sort of efficient and official system for communicating with city departments when we file one of these community impact statements now there's a web portal I go in I have a password I click a few buttons boom it's up there there's a ding in somebody's email inbox and then it's permanently attached to it. But when we want to deal with the Department of Transportation or the police department or Rec and Parks, we've got to figure out who to email, we've got to figure out how they get back to us, and, and we don't want to flood them. But to have some sort of official system that if a board takes the time to make a decision, they can send a message to somebody decently high up in one of these departments and get a response. And that's something that you know, it wouldn't cost a lot of money. And quite frankly, it would save everybody, we think, a lot of time. Yeah. So it, even those two simple changes, I think, would allow councils to be more effective, more efficient, um, and really get a lot more done. Mm -hmm. So as we kind of round towards the end, I had one uh, question and then kind of towards our, my last question. I would be remiss if I didn't ask a little bit about the controversy that saw you come to your presidency with the abundant <laughs> housing stuff. Yeah. Um, and this was a little bit of a weird one because it seems like a lot of the folks that um, ended up losing their positions are very well-meaning, well-intentioned, and dedicated community activists and community members. But this was also a strange one where some Brown Act violations were alleged. There was a lot of weird electioneering. I think it points to some of the weaknesses in the Neighborhood Council election system. I was hoping you could talk on, about that a little bit and like what you all have done to try and like avoid that in the future. Sure. Um, you know, uh, we, we had a, an election last year, technically a selection that was run by an election uh, and we had tremendous turnout. Um, but as in any election, uh, people are very curious as to why things happen, especially if results go against what people think they, they, they might they might normally otherwise be. And in this instance, we, we had uh, some people who were very interested in understanding more how the election worked and they wanted to see all the paperwork behind it, which is tremendous, and we wanted to get to them. And because we ran it this time, not the city clerk, we had more access to that. Um, so we've got a lot of uh, public records requests, just talking about the election, right before the transition uh, from one group of board members to the next. And I basically became president on a Tuesday, and I was handed this sealed box of ballots and voter registration forms by the outgoing folks and said, okay, you deal with this 
public records request. Uh, welcome to your new job. Welcome to your new job. So, you know, you've got to find time to scan these 3,000 documents, re- speak to the city attorney, redact the signatures, figure this all out. That was on a Tuesday. On a Wednesday, the local paper fed up with, and I, not to throw my predecessors under the bus, but they were frustrated, threatened to sue, and on Tuesday they did sue. Now, they didn't actually know how to sue a neighborhood council. They, they tried to serve me. Uh, I got all these calls. They didn't realize you have to serve the city clerk. And the ironic thing is that they would have gotten all the documents they were requesting in a matter of two or three weeks, uh, but because we had to deal with the lawsuit, it took significantly longer. And we wound up delivering exactly what they wanted, and they dropped the lawsuit, and the the only thing earned for me was a gray hair, and for some lawyer out there, it was a good deal of money from the local paper. Um, but one of the things that did come out in the context of all of those released documents was that there was no evidence of any organized effort by any group outside of Los Feliz to influence the election. Yes, there was a Facebook post endorsing some candidate. Most of Abundant Housing Slate lost, by the way. Uh, yes, there was a member of the group handing out flyers outside of the 100-foot zone. Uh, but we also had a slow growth group who, on our first day of early voting, was caught literally in the lobby of the polling place handing out this material. And yet, for some reason, you, you don't seem to hear about that as the, much. The Los Feliz ledger, it, it's almost like they have an ideology. Uh, you know, we, we were lucky. We're very lucky to have a local paper. Uh, we're very lucky that they give us some coverage and opportunity. And look, people are passionate about these yeah. things. And, and they deserve to be covered. And all what we will do, have done and will do, is be as transparent and open as possible, and if we see problems, we will try to fix them. However, I really think there there isn't any evidence, and, and by the way, these things have been released yeah. to, to multiple people, attorneys, they've been gone through by the city attorney, by the Department of Neighborhood Empowerment, by the city clerk, we haven't found any evidence of, of anything like that. So it's good to be vigilant, but I also think we have to be careful not to overreact. Uh, when it came to our affordable housing committee, um, Unfortunately, I think that's just a byproduct of the fact that anytime you talk about housing, whether it's for homeless individuals or mansions, people get passionate. And you have to be extra careful to follow the rules and be extra fair. And there was a a simple, honest mistake made here. And unfortunately, again, because of the high tensions, I think that kind of scuttled our efforts, which is unfortunate because what this committee was not coming out with any recommendations for upzoning or density, but coming out saying things like, have a tenant's advocate. Let's let's oppose RSU destruction. Certainly everybody can get behind that. So that kind of set us off for a year, but we learned a lesson. We learned that you have to be much more open and patient in communicating these ideas. So I, I think we'll actually be better uh, now, later off, though it is unfortunate that a lot of good people put in a lot of good, a lot of time, and and it was, um, and it was, it was somewhat hurt. I will say for the record that that some groups that would like to see more housing don't always help themselves with the rhetoric they they adopt. Um, you can be angry at folks who oppose your agenda, but calling them old white homeowners you're not going to win any friends. You're not going to get anything done. So I really think that all sides have to be, you know, this is also same for the Coalition to Preserve LA. Uh, these are folks who really are, are somewhat on the extremes, and I think there's room for a lot more to be done with cooler heads and bigger hearts. And I, I want to say, actually, this is a perfect note to round out on, is uh, as you're looking forward five years, what do you want to see for this neighborhood? What do you want to see for Los Feliz, for the Hollywood area? What would be, you know, your optimal you know, five-year plan. I would love to see a neighborhood in which people can feel safe walking, biking, uh, driving. 
I would love to see a neighborhood that has public spaces for all, uh, public spaces that are in neighborhoods that now might be a little bit dense uh, that could use a small parklet. I would love to see more projects that come in with an affordable component, such as uh, dedicated low-income housing. Uh, I think this neighborhood has, you know, no problem putting up five townhouses. If you can give us one, you know, even one little unit here. that two, we Two gigantic developments just down the street. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, you know, I'd love to see that. I'd love to see a neighborhood where landlords um, work with their tenants to try to keep their tenants in. And we, I'd love to see a neighborhood where we attract the sort of landlords who realize that these properties aren't just a cash cow. They're not a, a stone to squeeze blood out of, but they're actually homes where people live. I have no problem with people building new developments and making money off that if people want to live there. Um, so I, I would like to see that, and I would like to see a community that is as diverse as Los Feliz, that literally has millionaires and neighbors experiencing homelessness on the same street, start to feel one sort of identity to embrace the diversity that we have here and feel that groups like the Neighborhood Council and others can be almost a forum. This is this this community is, is, is there's a reason they call it Los Feliz Village in the middle. It really is a small town and I think that's one of our greatest strengths and I think if we can preserve that and protect that even in the light of all the challenges facing the city, this will still be a wonderful place to live. Excellent. Well, uh, when is the uh, the board election coming up? The Neighborhood Council elections for Los Feliz will be April 6th uh, from 2 to 9 p.m. at the Elysian Masonic Lodge. That's 1900 Vermont or the corner of Vermont and Franklin. And you don't have to be registered to vote. You don't have to bring any identification to vote. You just show up, um, be willing, be able to uh, say either where you live or where you work. They're going to ask you for the address. They might ask you, uh, where's your organization? Where's your church? You fill out a form and, and you'll get a ballot. Our meetings are every third Tuesday of uh, the month, but uh, those are just the governing board meetings. There are a lot of committee meetings and any stakeholder can get involved in committees. And, and so much of our work is done by these folks who aren't even elected. So definitely come to the election, pay attention, but pay attention beyond that too, because we, we are always looking for good people to help out. Excellent. John, thank you very much for your time and best of luck with your work. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 